Welcome to the best of the Joys of Binge Reading 2023, Part 1, the first of two shows featuring the most listened to programs on our popular fiction podcast, chosen solely on the basis of the number of times you, our audience, listen to them. They include an interesting range of genres, from a contemporary thriller to a French story in equal parts about food and love, a World War II spy mystery to a New Zealand historical saga predating European settlement, and two romances, one a fresh and funny rom-com, the other a tender second chance romance, a tale of loss, regret, and the influence family has on life-changing decisions. And like our audience, our authors reflect our international reach, with two Australians, a Kiwi, one French-American, and one each from New York and Massachusetts. We present brief excerpts from each show with links for where to find them if you'd like to hear more. As in previous years, we've selected shows that aired between December 1, 2022 and December 1, 2023. The second part of this Best Of series will air on January 16. But now, here's the first of this week's guest authors, Kelly Rimmer. Her sweeping World War II suspense has sold more than 2 million copies worldwide and made international bestseller lists, including the New York Times, the Wall Street Journal and USA Today. Her latest book, The Paris Agent, is a fascinating dual timeline mystery with multiple romance lines moving from England and France during World War II to the 1970s and the daughter of one of those people that was involved in the war. It's a powerful story of two otherwise ordinary women who become spies dropped into Nazi-occupied France. I asked Kelly to tell us of the story's genesis. My daughter's name is Violette. It's her family name from my husband's side. And when I was pregnant with her and we were talking about names, we do the Googling thing, trying to think about famous people with this name or what the meaning of the name is. And I stumbled upon Violette Salvo, who was an SOE agent in the F section of the SOE. Her story was so inspiring and had stuck with me. I loved the idea that we're naming my daughter after someone so incredible. And I had always intended, always hoped that I would come up with the right premise to write a book that was inspired by her. And maybe two or three years ago, I heard a podcast about Diana Rowden, who was another SOE agent who I had never heard of, even though I'd done a little bit of reading about the SOE. And I also found her to be just such an incredible woman. And so the idea for this book came out of their stories, their real life stories. It's fiction. I've taken a few liberties here and there with their stories and they were actually close friends but in my book my characters inspired by them are friends but where I could I followed the real history. Yes part of its foundation is the understanding that's emerged since the war that the special operations executives the branch of the British separate service that handled all of the dispensing of agents over France the ones that were so tremendously brave just to jump out of planes into enemy territory and work to support the resistance there, that some of those people were betrayed from within the SOE even before they set foot on French soil. And that's all emerged rather more recently. As soon as I came across that story, I thought it would be really interesting to write about these agents who have the best of intentions, who have taken to their training with every ounce of energy and dedication that they have, 
and who go off hoping that they can do something to turn the tide of the war, they're really fighting an uphill battle because there are people within the SOE who are working against them. Kelly's fellow Australian, best-selling author Fiona Lowe's latest contemporary thriller, The Money Club, centres on the scenario of a small town scammed by one of their own in a Ponzi scheme. Fiona unpicks the moral quagmire of those who trade on the bonds of their closest friendships and families for money. The story is based in a fictional rural town outside of Melbourne, but it's got personal connections for Fiona, who explains just how that came about. A couple of things. So my claim to fame, I'm not sure it's a great one, is that I live in a regional city that has been subject to two of Australia's worst Ponzi schemes. In fact, we actually had at one point, standing in our kitchen drinking our wine, we had one of the perpetrators of one of these schemes. We did not invest. But the fact that he was standing in our kitchen came about because of small towns and the networks. You never too many handshakes away from anybody. When this scheme went down and $89 million went missing, a lot of people in my town were affected and I observed the fallout from that. I hadn't actually intended to write a book about it. It was just like, isn't this awful? And it was just sitting there in the back burner. And then another decade went by and the town got hit by another Ponzi scheme. And I remember listening to an ABC podcast about a couple of blokes down in East Gippsland who had invested and lost money and they were trying to get their money back and they believed that there was a middleman involved and they were trying to sort that out. And I remembered these families and these workplaces because Ponzi schemes are networks, entire extended families go down, entire sporting communities, sections of a factory, they all invest because they all trust each other. And I started to think if you lose everything, normally you can turn to someone in the family and they can help you out. But if your entire extended family has lost everything, where does that leave you? And I thought, I need to write a book about this. It sounds really good. And early on, there is the question raised of, were they gullible or were they greedy? That was a big theme of the book. What is need and what is greed? And that was my constant question that I was asking as I was writing the book. Is it greedy to want to own your own home? Is it greedy to want to educate your children? Is it greedy to want to own a Lamborghini and four other cars? And who makes a decision about what is need and what is greed and where's the line drawn? So that's constantly being tossed around. And the other thing about the Ponzi scheme and with the Money Club is that this wasn't a stranger that was suggesting that they invest. This was a friend, someone they trusted, a man whose father was a financial advisor. They came with gravitas and trust is such a huge thing. Fresh and funny rom-com author Amy Popel's latest literary romp, The Sweet Spot, is a tale of spurned love, revenge, and the healing power of friendship. Here's part of our conversation about that book, Amy's fourth novel. The Washington Post said of The Sweet Spot, she puts more planes in the air than an ambitious air traffic controller and gracefully lands each one. You describe it as a love letter to family, 
Friendships and Greenwich Village. Tell us something about this fourth novel. So I wanted to write a book that took place in Greenwich Village because that's where I live. That is my neighborhood. It's beautiful. I happen to live in faculty housing at one of the biggest universities here, which is NYU. So I live in this sort of large, very strange faculty dorm almost, which is, I think, a novel in and of itself at some point. I think that should be the next novel that I write. But I walk around this neighborhood all the time and you see faces over and over again, even though this is a big, big city. But it's Greenwich Village feels like a village. And we have these beautiful brownstones. So I'm always walking around Washington Square Park and looking up at these beautiful, iconic brownstones. And I just wondered what goes on in there. And I got this idea that I wanted there to be three women all in the area who don't know each other at the outset of the book, have pretty quickly every reason to hate each other, and then who end up overcoming that and not only becoming friends, but they sort of bond over this little baby that really has nothing to do with any of them. <laughs> but he becomes their problem. You say you like to write funny stories in which interesting, driven women figure out who they are and what they want, fix their mistakes, and build a life on their own terms and even find love. Now, that sounds like a lifelong project. <laughs> I also, speaking of my wonderful women friends my age, I'm just forever impressed at how well women manage the chapters of their lives. We go through so many different iterations of ourselves and we reinvent ourselves so beautifully, I think. So I really did want to pay tribute to that. And those three women, the three main characters in the book, but Evelyn also, and she's our sort of outsider, but slightly older character, not much older. But I wanted each of those women to find a way to reinvent themselves and come out in a better place than they started. You bring in that idea of the sweet spot very nicely in the book. But there is a bar called the sweet spot, which has a fairly central part to play as well. But each one of the characters in a different way and in a different part of the book seems to recognize for themselves, oh, this is a sweet spot for me or this is my sweet spot. So it's nicely yes. threaded into the book. Yes. And the bar, coming up with the idea for the bar was so much fun because I wanted this family to get to the privilege of living in this brownstone. But I didn't want to make life too easy for them. So first, I filled it with things that weren't their own things that they were going to have to live with and set up a situation where they couldn't just clear out the house. Then I thought, well, let's also not have it be one of these absolutely beautifully renovated brownstones. Let's give them an unrenovated brownstone with the big air conditioning units in the windows and really terrible appliances and just a kitchen that really needs to be gutted and redone. And I thought, that's good. They're pretty uncomfortable now. And then I thought, what if I could make them a little bit more uncomfortable? And I thought I was walking around my neighborhood and I thought, let's put a bar in the basement because that happens here all the time. You might have a dry cleaner in the basement or a bakery. And I thought, no, let's have a bar in the basement because that would create a little extra mayhem. But also it would be a really nice place for happenstance. It would be a good meeting place where people encounter each other. Juliet Bay is the award-winning, best-selling author of 10 novels that raise questions of loss, regret, second chances, and the influence families play in life-changing decisions. Juliet talks about her latest novel, The Half of It, 
described by the critics as, quotes, an immensely satisfying page turner, perfect for fans of Josie Silva and Jojo Moyes. Here's Juliet in conversation on the joys of binge reading. We're talking about your latest book, The Half of It. It's a perfectly executed second chance love story. And I wondered right at the beginning, how would you define it in terms of genre fiction? Is it a romance? Is it a second coming of age story? How would you classify it? I would classify it as contemporary fiction. It's not really a classical romance story in that there's a lot more going on. It's really about the entire life of the main character, Helen Spencer, who's 58 years old. And it's about her relationships with her friends and her children. There is a romance at the center of it or a potential romance. But I like that phrase, second coming of age. I think that she's at a point in her life where she really needs to make a course correction. And that's the crux of it. It's interesting. As the population in general is growing older, we probably have a little bit more time to regroup. And in fact, it becomes necessary if you're going to just keep on living to have a chance to regroup, look back on your life, decide whether there are things you would have done differently, take stock a little bit, isn't there? Yes, absolutely. And one of the things that was so fascinating to me writing this story is that looking around, there aren't very many books with main characters in their 50s and 60s. It's very few. I mean, you have to really dig. It seems that there's books of characters in their 70s, 80s, and 90s, and then 20s, 30s, and 40s. I feel like everybody is in their 30s, most of the books. But your 50s and 60s are such a fascinating time because, as you say, you get a second chance to think things through. You've got a piece online that you wrote for Psychology Today about writing your way to a happy brain. It was a lovely piece, but it indicates that you might have gone through a similar kind of vision of your life, but at quite a lot earlier age. Would you like talking about that? It is online for everybody to see. Yes, right. It's no big secret. So I had my fourth child and I had quit my job. I was working part-time. So I was home with the kids and I was actually quite unhappy. I love my children. I love being with them. But I really felt like I was not using my brain. I used to joke that I was a wiper of spills, a wiper of bottoms, a wiper of noses, like I was a professional wiper. And I felt very constrained by the fact that I didn't have anything that was mine. And I tried a bunch of different things. Like I knew and my husband knew that I was not happy and I needed to find something. And so I started writing and I I describe it. It's a little bit like falling in love. Like I couldn't wait to get back to my characters. I couldn't wait. I was about 40. And it was, I would say, a little midlife crisis of, okay, this is great. I'm very grateful that I have all these little crazy people running around and my wonderful husband. But it's still not enough. I still need something else. And I was able to feed that need with writing. And it's been a wonderful thing for the last 20 years. Monty Suter is a respected New Zealand historian who took a big step and turned his life upside down to write a game-changing novel, a story of nation-building through the eyes of its original people. Kawai, that's the Māori name, English subtitle for such a time as this, 
is the first instalment in what is planned to be a three-book family saga which went straight to the top of the bestseller list in New Zealand and stayed there for 22 weeks on launch. It's in the tradition of Alex Haley's roots, introducing readers to pre-European Māori life in much the same way as Alex Haley's tale of tracing his roots back to Africa captivated an international audience. And Monty's story about how he came to write it involves a road to Damascus encounter, as he explains. In 2019, I finished my most recent non-fiction book, which was a, a history of Māori participation in the First World War. And it's a huge book. It took me about five years to research and write. So I was pretty almost burned out after that and decided to go on holiday with my wife. And because I put so much time into that, I felt there was an opportunity to sit back and have a blow, really. And we were heading to Greece for three months to spend time with our friends. But before I left, I had this, I had this inkling that there's something I'm supposed to do next and it's not non-fiction. The audience, I was really interested in that young people. I felt that fiction was the way to reach them, but I just didn't quite know what I was going to write. I was half asleep and I heard this voice. I didn't actually hear it, but this impression in my mind just said, get roots. And it was clear. And I woke up about an hour and a half later. I said to my wife, hey, we've got to get this book, Roots. Roots series was well known to me from the 1970s. I said, well, the book's so old, you probably have to go to a secondhand bookshop or a rare bookshop. And so we're driving back to Gisborne and we get to this little place called Pyrrhal, which is a little town between Auckland and Gisborne. On a Sunday when you wouldn't expect anything to be open. And I was asleep and she was driving and she nudged me and she said, hey, look, there's a Red Cross book sale on the side of the road. And I looked up and sure enough, and there was just these boxes of books there that were being sold. And on a Sunday, we stopped and we said, well, let's have a look. Who knows? That book roots might be here. And they had them in alphabetical order in boxes, A to Z. And I walked straight to the box that had the R's, the books with R's, and they were all spined down. So you had to look at the spine to see what the title was. But in this particular box, there was one book sitting on top of all the others with the, the cover down, but it wasn't spined down. It, the book was sitting there like it, it was waiting for somebody. And I turned it over and it was The Roots Book by Alex Haley. And I looked at my wife, she looked at me. And so we knew then that whatever I had heard, whatever this impression voice was, meant something that I was supposed to do. So I took the book to Greece and I read it. And long story short, I came to the understanding in my mind that I'm supposed to write a saga like that, which followed a number of generations of a Māori family in order to tell the history of this country in a way that it's never been told before. That's what I had come up with. And so after a seven-day fast and a sort of retreat, five days into it, I started to hear this impression again in my head. And I wrote down what I was being told. And there were three things, three big things that I believed I had to do once I got back to New Zealand. One was to, to leave my job. And I worked for the government as an historian. Two, to sell my house, or our house, my wife and I. And I understood that was to give me some income to be able to write the series that I've started on. 
And the third one was to write the series. So leave work, sell a book, write the series. And I'm that sort of person who's, if I hadn't seen the Roots book there sitting on that box, I might have been had some doubts, but I believe that there was some sort of divine guidance that was leading me into doing this, that I was ready to do it. No questions asked. But I had to ask my wife, of course, because it was going to impact on her. And I can say that she wasn't keen immediately, but through some things that happened, I think she realized that this is something that has to be done and I'm meant to do it. And we came back to New Zealand and I followed that plan. And that's how I got to into writing the Carway series. And it has sold very well, hasn't it? Well, I mean, it went straight to number one New Zealand fiction in the week it was launched and it stayed there for 22 weeks. And number one, that's, I heard of some sort of a record and I really can't explain why people well, such a diverse group with the population are reading it because it's not one group of people. It's a wide range. I mean, the greatest thrill I get is people who come to me and say, look, I've never read a book since I left secondary school, but this book has encouraged me to read. And I think that has to be put down that people do actually want to know something about this country. French-American author Samantha Barant delivers perfectly seasoned fiction that combines her passions in life, France, food and love, and her latest book, The Spice Master at Bistro Exotique, set in Paris, is a romantic and culinary delight. I first asked Samantha about The Spice Master at Bistro Exotique. It's a fantastic story of a chef in France, a French-American chef, setting up a new restaurant. But all of your books show passions for two things, France and food. And I wondered which came first. Well, honestly, food came first. When I was nine years old, I was ripping out recipes from Bon Appetit and Gourmet Magazine. And I think my pièce de résistance came when I was 11. And I made a 20-pound Sunday pie with chocolate leaves. I molded from actual leaves. And it's a big joke in my family because my father was, this pie was so much. But I've always been drawn to the kitchen and cooking. And then but, when I went to France, hello, French recipes. <laughs> you provide a generous number of recipes for readers in all of these books. And in Bistro Exotique, it's a fantastic-looking ice cream recipe, Charles's coconut ice cream. And readers can get it from your website if they want to. We'll have links for that in the, in the sound notes for this episode. Do you get a lot of good feedback from people? Do they make some of your suggestions? Oh, yeah, they do. And I think it's an added bonus to have recipes in the book, especially since I'm describing the food. And what if somebody goes, oh, my God, that sounds so great, and they want to make it. And so before writing out the recipes, of course, I test them a lot. And I have my two French critics here, or three, actually, my French family. And so they eat really well when I'm testing. That's wonderful. Yes, you mention your French family rather provocatively on your website. You say that you, quotes married a sexy French rocket scientist that you met in 1989 brackets, but ignored for 20 years. Now, you can't leave a teaser like that without 
giving us a little bit of background story there. I met my friend Tristan at a company in Paris in 1989. I was 19. He was 26. And I was with my best friend, Tracy, who is also, it's in the memoir. This story's in Seven Letters from Paris. And he wrote me, after our brief rendezvous, he wrote me seven love letters. And I didn't write him back until 20 years later. And I'm now married to him. Our 13th wedding anniversary is May 7th. When you went to France and started eating French food, was there a particular meal or dish which still resonates for you today? I think all of them, but the one that resonates with me the most was my first Christmas in France. It was a Civet de Saint-Louis, which is wild boar. And my brother-in-law was like, I shot it myself. And I, I looked at the sauce and then I nudged Jean-Luc with my elbows and sauce. And he's like, it's wonderful. It's wonderful. What sauce? And I went, oh, right. I don't think I, I, I can eat this. I took a bite or it wasn't for me. But since then, it was feet into the fire where some French meals, that's the most memorable one. And I actually do like it after having it the second and third time. Clearly, I'm not a vegetarian. Well, that's it for today. A taster of six of the 12 most popular shows we aired on the joys of binge reading in 2023 according to the number of times you listen to them. If you like what you've heard, follow up on the links and listen to the full episode. And leave us a review so others will find us too. The second part of the best of the joys of binge reading will air in two weeks in mid-January. That's it for now. See you next time and meantime, happy reading.